Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. This is a podcast that breaks down interpersonal science into practical and understandable tidbits. And as you listen, I can just imagine little light bulbs of insight appearing above your head. You're going to be surprised and touched at what you learn about yourself as you get more accurate and in-depth view of your mind and your heart, and as you figure out those close to you. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hi, all This is Ann. Sue and I are taking our annual break as we prepare for a fourth season coming this fall. So during our break, we are replaying some of our most popular and substantive episodes for you. So some of you, this is going to be repeat, but you know, with this material, it can be so helpful to listen again. You'll always hear something new. And for new listeners, it gives you a chance to hear some selectively chosen episodes that we find extremely helpful in all of our journeys of building security and connections inside ourselves and our relationships. So we hope you enjoy that. And as a preview before we jump in to our fourth season We just have some great interviews already lined up. We have Deb Dana we've already interviewed, and that's coming. Alan Shore, we'll have Dan Brown back. These are just amazingly insightful people. We're also going to be covering some specific topics requested by our Patreon members. We're going to take deeper dives into attachment and personality issues, such as narcissism and borderline features. I could go on with the list, but trust, we have a great season in store for you. We're also going to be finalizing a workshop that will condense some of this material for you in a really in-depth and personal way. So look for that. Now, during our podcasting break, we are still going to remain really active in our online community. So if you haven't had a chance to join our online community, please do. Therapist Uncensored has a Facebook group. We also have a private group that has rich material and active discussions. And for our Patreon members, we have a secret Facebook group. And we are so excited. This has become extremely active. And we will continue for that group to be live, doing some live videos and discussions this whole time. So we will not be disappearing. We'll be there the whole summer. Also, feel free to continue to send us more wishes and requests for the next season. So we love hearing from you. For those of you that might be interested in becoming a Patreon member and you think you can help support us in our efforts to bring this material to you, we would be ever so grateful. Go to patreon.com backslash therapist uncensored and sign up even as little as $5 a month or at certain levels, you can be featured on our webpage. All right, so thank you all for listening, and let's jump into today's episode. We're really excited to have uh, Dr. David Elliott on our show today. But before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Elliott. Dr. Elliott graduated from Harvard University, and he trained at Tuff University Counseling Center in McLean Hospital. And he is currently on the faculty at the International School for Psychotherapist, Counseling, and Group Leadership in St. Petersburg, Russia. And he is also in private practice here in the United States. So without further ado, let me turn it over to Sue. Let me let you introduce yourself. Hello, Sue, and hello, everybody. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm primarily a clinician. I'm a psychologist. I've been in practice since 1990. 
and my practice is based in Providence, Rhode Island. And I actually decided to become a psychologist when I was 12 years old. So I've mm-hmm. stayed true to that and uh, have been very happy about that choice. And my understanding of why I decided so early to be a psychologist is that I was a very, very shy, very sensitive and probably insecure kid. And I could really identify with people who I read about as having difficulties with their feelings. So I got more interested in that and and actually came into this profession and have found it to be tremendously rewarding in all sorts of ways. That's so true. So many of us got into this field for similar reasons. And it's just a matter of whether we are conscious of that or not. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, in addition to having, you know, been quite shy and sensitive, I was also quite mentally identified. You know, I got lots of reward for doing well in school and some of my identity formed around that. So why don't you start by telling us why attachment? What is your, I mean, this book must have really taken, you know, quite a lot of work. So why put your heart into attachment Mm. specifically? You know, one of the foundations of my interest in this was just my own experience of, of attachment in my history and working with that over the years. But in addition to that, several things. One, when I came to recognize both through my practice, my psychotherapy practice, and just reading the research, the pervasiveness or the the high prevalence of insecure attachment, I just felt like it's just clear. It is clear to so many people now in the field how important this topic is. If it's true, I've estimated roughly 40% of the population of Western countries has insecure attachment. That's a lot of people. And when somebody has insecure attachment, and of course there can be a wide range of severity of that from less problematic to very severely problematic and disruptive, but wherever someone would fall along the spectrum of attachment insecurity, they're likely to have difficulties in a number of areas that really affect well-being. For example, self-development, you know, insecure attachment interferes with the development of self-esteem, with stability and clarity of a sense of self, with organization of mind. And, you know, those can create real problems in in people's experience. Obviously, attachment difficulty can contribute significantly to relational disturbance, difficulty with intimacy. People can really want to be close with people, but have a pattern of relationships that last, you know, six months at a time or or one year or or less and and be really frustrated with that or just avoid relationships altogether and either conscious or less conscious levels be quite unhappy with that. So can I ask you a quick question? So you said 40% insecure, but what what do you think about that actually even being, because you said Western society and if I'm remembering correctly, isn't that like it, when I think of the Crittenden work, when you begin to look cross-culturally and when you look at more clinical populations and things like that, isn't that 40% even considered like that's more of the non-clinical kind of Anglo-white? Yeah, um, exactly. Gen- but, general, so, general population. General pop. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you do start looking at other groups, other cultures, other countries, clinical populations, the numbers get more frightening. So, for example, there have been several studies done looking at the attachment status of people with borderline personality disorder. 
And mm-hmm. approximately, both studies found that well over 80% of the people had, you know, with borderline personality had, had insecure attachment. Looking right. cross-culturally, there was a study that was published in 2010 looking at infants in St. Petersburg, Russia. And this study used the Pat Crittenden's assessment method and classification system. And according to that, that their methods found that only roughly 8% of the infants had secure attachment. 92% had insecure attachment. I teach this material regularly in, in Russia, in St. Petersburg, and I was actually teaching a seminar when one of the people in the group told me of this study, and I didn't believe it. I thought, you know, how can that be? That must be, you know, an error in the numbers that you're reporting. And I could see people in the room, you know, indicating or nodding their heads when those numbers were, were repeated, saying, no, we understand that. These numbers are accurate. We believe that based on their mm-hmm. own experience. So, yeah, this is a, this is a worldwide challenge. And if we're interested not just at you know helping people individually to lead better and and better lives, more comfortable, more fulfilling lives, but also interested in larger issues, larger social issues, then I think this is a very important topic to 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 understand and to to try try to bring remedies. Right, I I do too, and that's one of the things that to me is really exciting about talking about the more recent work because. When we talk about security, that a lot of the factors related to security really are things like or something that I read that if you have say nine of these things, and it was things like if you are married, if you have a good job, you know, and it was basically as you have these things that are predictors of secure attachment, they of course are things that take you out of high risk categories, and then as you have high risk circumstances related to socioeconomics or what have you you move out, you know, you have a greater chance of having some of these insecure categories or, or anxious insecure categories. Yes. It's an important cultural conversation to be having and then to be creating these interventions. And this is where I, want, I definitely want to steer us towards some of the things that you have learned and the how, what we can do about it. These very incredible assessments that we've had for decades now and the research, what has all of this taught us about how we can intervene. Let me just say a couple more things briefly about the, sure. I think the importance of this topic too. Another area of functioning that, that is problematic when there's insecure attachment is emotional development and emotion regulation. So people who have insecure attachment will tend to either over-regulate emotions, like kind of shut down and you know say, I don't, I don't feel I'm a rock. Stay away from emotions. That would be more the the dismissing pattern, or will tend to be overwhelmed by emotions, have very difficulty regulating emotional experience and and tend to get confused and disorganized and and overwhelmed and lose perspectives. That would be somebody with anxious preoccupied attachment or or disorganized attachment. So when we, we find that as we treat the attachment difficulty, there's greater internal organization and greater emotion regulation capacity. And, you know, that in and of itself brings more well-being to to someone's experience. They're not so scared of emotions, not so overwhelmed by emotions. And also, if they haven't felt emotions very much, able to feel something safely and more comfortably. So so that's a really positive thing. And And then the other thing I wanted to say is that through my work and our work, 
uh, you know, those of us who are involved in writing this book, in our work with people who've been traumatized in some way, who are coming to us with post-traumatic conditions of various sorts, we find that some people do very, very well with more traditional trauma processing model of trauma treatment. You know, it's more of a cognitive processing approach. Pat Riesick and, and her her methods are tremendously valuable. Patricia, Pat Riesick, R-E-S-I-C-K, or R-E-S-I-K, I don't remember the actual spelling, but but we find, too, that some people, if you try to apply that method, they become more disorganized, more overwhelmed, and actually the symptoms get worse. Mm-hmm. And what we found is that those people who have that kind of experience are people who have an underlying attachment disturbance that has led to difficult emotion regulation and poor internal structure of mind or organization of mind, so that when they start to look at the traumatic experience as part of treatment, they don't have the emotion regulation skills or the internal organization to help them manage that experience. They get overwhelmed. And so what we find is that for people with complex trauma particularly, or people we see aren't doing well with some of the more traditional trauma treatment approach, if we treat the attachment difficulties first, then often not only does the emotion regulation skill develop and the internal organization and structure of mind develop, but the trauma itself might resolve Mm -hmm. just through the the development of those internal capacities. The post-traumatic condition might resolve. And then for those people for whom it doesn't resolve through the attachment work, then it's possible to go to the cognitive processing approach for trauma treatment in ways that can be very efficient and, you know, the person doesn't get, get overwhelmed by it and notices gains, you know, quite quickly. And that makes perfect sense because in treating the attachment, you are caring for sort of this young self and these in such loving, supportive, attuned ways that haven't been done before. So that, in a sense, is treating the trauma potential. Yeah. Like it really yeah. is filling, like it, it is directly treating the trauma frequently. Mm. So mm. it makes sense that the trauma itself would be healing in many mm. cases, and maybe not all, but that it's a double dose in a way. Mm. And then... Yes. And then even if there is a specific trauma that doesn't get touched by that attachment healing, having that secure base to then stand on to then do the trauma work in a more regulated way is just a good thing. I mean, I I really do understand what you're saying, that if you you get to the trauma and you get dysregulated, that you don't have a floor, (laughs) if you don't have a foundation to stand on, then you're not doing anybody any favors. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, it, right. can be re-tra- it can be re-traumatizing. Re-traumatizing, yes. We don't yeah. want to do that. I'm, I really appreciate what you're saying. It makes a lot of sense. And it would be an easy mistake to make. It would be an easy mistake to make because so many oh. times the client would come in with that's what's knocking under the hood. That's what they want help with is the intrusions or the nightmares or the because mm-hmm. that's the thing that's easier to point to than the attachment mm-hmm. difficulties. So that would be the easier thing for the therapist to feel like they're being helpful about. I could just see how that, that would be an easy easy mistake to make. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, that's, I, I really like how you're phrasing this as well. It's so very important. And 
we're hoping and looking forward to more research coming out about this as well in terms of the action, you know, these trauma patterns and, and the attachment and trauma and the, the treatment approach that we've just talked about really lends itself to empirical exploration. So we're, we're really hoping that you know, we'll be able to produce some data at some point before too long. Just one thing more I wanted to say is, is an acknowledgement of the other people involved in, in this book. Daniel Brown is the senior author of this book. It's Brown and Elliot. He's a psychologist based in Boston who's a brilliant scholar and clinician, and he's been a pioneer in trauma treatment and, and understanding of trauma and trauma and memory, and also on um, hypnosis and hypnotherapy, and also on um, meditation and mind development in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. He leads a lot of retreats all over the world now that focus on helping people realize who we really are, helping us realize who we really are in terms of beyond the personality and beyond our personal identities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's a, he's a very integrative thinker, has, has integrated the whole spectrum of human development in, in the way he, he does his work. And I, I feel very fortunate to have been you know, working with him and, and creating this book. There are also uh, seven other people who are listed in the book as contributing authors, and these are other people who uh, we've all been part of a, an ongoing study group for the last almost 10 years, I would say, where the ideas that we present in the book were, were developed and refined. So I just want to acknowledge that this has been a group effort that has been very rewarding for all of us. Creativity coming out of a group like that is just so amazing. And um, so what about the... What to do about this? What's the intervention? What's, or at least what's the high level? What are some of the practicals? If there's just a way to just begin to sketch out the general ideas and to kind of uh, get people hungry to learn a little more and, you know, give us an idea of, of the direction that you're beginning to think related to treatment. And I can share, you know, I've begun to use this in my practice and it has been practice changing. It really has. So go ahead. When we looked at the field of treatment of attachment, we recognized that there developed three primary approaches to helping people with attachment difficulties. And the most common and the the longest existing uh, developed actually starting from Bowlby. And that approach involves the ways that the therapist is with a patient that helps the patient to develop a new internal working model of attachment. The idea is that the therapist becomes a good attachment figure for the patient who did not have good attachment figures as a child, and because of that had developed insecure internal representations or internal working models of attachment. So the principle is that through the therapist behaving as a good attachment figure, the patient will have a new positive experience of relationship that gets internalized and replaces the old negative or problematic internal representation of attachment. So that's been a foundation in the field of treatment of attachment, and there's a lot of merit to that. But we also saw some limitations in that, which I'll get to in a moment. The other area, or a second area that has emerged more recently in the last, well, probably in the last 20 years, is the development of metacognition. Peter Fonagy and his colleagues and others, Anthony Bateman, John Allen, also a group of Italian psychologists from the Rome Institute for Cognitive Psychotherapy, or the Third Center for Cognitive Psychotherapy in Rome, 
they have focused on helping people develop metacognitive skills. And metacognition is essentially the capacity to be aware of one's own and other's mind and mental activity as mind and mental activity. So it's knowing that what's in the mind is in the mind. And it's essentially like observing ego, going all the way back to Freud, talking about, you know, the development of the observing capacity. But it's been highly refined since then. And Peter Fonagy and his colleagues developed a whole treatment called mentalization-based treatment that was talked about in the last podcast, as you said. And because problems in mentalization and problems in metacognitive ability are very present in people with insecure attachment, the notion is that if mentalization, metacognitive ability can be enhanced in people with insecure attachment, then that can help to reduce the attachment insecurity. And there's some good research that supports aspects of this. We find it to be really essential in the field. We also feel that there's some limitations in the way that's been done so far, which again, I'll get to in a moment. And the third area that's emerged even more recently is looking at intersubjectivity and particularly collaborative and cooperative ability in people. And it turns out that in people with insecure attachment, there tends to be difficulty being in collaboration, being in cooperative interaction with others, sharing a goal and working mutually toward a particular goal, for example, being interested in and open to others' contributions and offering one's own contributions, kind of going back and forth. And because of some of the early problematic experience between, you know, a child who developed insecure attachment and the caregiver, as adults, they have difficulty with collaborative or cooperative ability. And some, some interesting treatments have emerged that focus on this as well. Beatrice Beebe and Frank Lackman have done good work in that area. Giovanni Liatti from Italy has, has done a lot in this. And we feel that that's very, very helpful. So again, some limitations in that. And so what we did with our work and what we present in the book is present an integration of these three areas and three aspects of treatment that we feel respects and honors the strengths that are out there in the field uh, in these three areas and also goes beyond the limitations as those areas you know, have been and currently exist in the field. And we call these the three pillars of comprehensive attachment repair. First pillar is developing new positive internal working models of attachment. Second pillar is developing and enhancing a range of metacognitive skills. And the third is developing collaborative and cooperative ability so that the relationships can include that much more prominently. So these are the three pillars. And in our treatment approach, we engage each of these. We engage the, the patient or the client uh, with each of these in various ways. And we feel that because each of these reflects a dimension of functioning that's known to be important for attachment security, if we work to enhance each of these, then the treatment can more effectively, more efficiently, and more comprehensively lead to earned secure attachment. So that's kind of a big overview. For developing positive attachment representations, positive internal working models to replace the problematic insecure models, as I said, the general approach and the foundational approach in the attachment treatment has been the therapist behaves as a good attachment figure. And we think there's merit to that because at any age, we can internalize our experience of relationships. And if we have a very positive relationship, 
we will internalize the positive aspects of those and that will that will bring benefit to us. But the problem as it's been in the field, well, there are several problems. One is that in the typical psychotherapy context of a 50-minute session one or two times a week, the person meeting with the therapist who's behaving as a good attachment figure is not going to have a lot of experience, a lot of time with that person behaving in that way. So that we think is a real limitation. Secondly, as much as a therapist, any therapist tries to be the best possible attachment figure, you know, we're all human beings. We all have our own attachment dynamics. We all have our own limitations. And in those 50 minute sessions, it's a lot to expect that the therapist will always be fully on as the best possible attachment figure for any particular person to internalize experiences of. So that's second limitation. And the third, and this is very, very important, is that in the therapeutic context of an adult patient with an adult therapist, that is developmentally and experientially very different than the formative conditions for the attachment bond, which is a child relating to an adult, the child relating to an adult caregiver or parent. So in a therapeutic setting, even if the therapist is is a great attachment figure and the patient does internalize aspects of that experience with the therapist, it may actually not touch the problematic internal representation of the early experience because it's not an early experience. It's a current adult experience. So we don't think that the therapist as good attachment figure context really sufficiently approximates the formative conditions for the attachment bond and the representation of attachment. Right. I like that a lot. It's like, no matter how great I am (laughs) as a therapist, right. And even if somebody's seeing me a couple times a week or in group or what have you, the problem is, well, one of the problems is that the internal working model, it's a, it's a Petri dish that we live with and we're kind of souped in, you know, it's our soup <laughs> that we're immersed in and we kind of don't even know that we are, it, it's like, a, it's almost like a DNA kind of like that we, we are thinking these things and generating these thoughts that are kind of, it's almost the unthought known of the old working model. It's the lens that we see the world. And so then we have this little parentheses of relief with a more secure way of relating or that we mm-hmm. get the, attune- the attunement and all the good stuff that you get in therapy, hopefully. Mm-hmm. But all the rest of the time that we're generating this from this old internal working model. So yes, it can work over time or even with a secure partner. That's good and that does work and that's, but that it's, slow at best, and perhaps not enough. So this ideal parent figure protocol speeds up the process tremendously and is a much more direct intervention because the image is of the self as small and then the ideal parent figures. So it it really hits the injury right on the the nail on the head, and then it it provides the missing nutrients like an IV, like it really gives the exact nutrient necessary from an up-down perspective, not a peer perspective or anything like yes. that. It's the, it's the parent. I'm curious, when you have used this with people, can you just give some examples of, like, do people typically use their parents and morph them into good parents, or do they use other things? Great question, and 
let me just frame a little bit more the, the method itself, the ideal parent figure, figure method. You know, as you referred to, we actually guide the patient to imagining himself or herself as a very young child. Actually, the first step is developing a very clear sense and experience of, of the body. So we, we, we enhance body-based awareness, body-based experience, which is consistent with how we experience ourselves when we're very young children. You know, the cognitive capacities, you know, when attachment representations form, roughly between 12 and 20 months, the cognitive system has not developed to the point of narrative sequences and thought. There's much more body-based experience. So we help the, the person become really kind of centrally focused in his or her body. And then we suggest that they imagine themselves being a very, very young child and support a felt sense of that, an actual felt sense of being a very young child. And when the person is able to do that and indicates that he or she you know, has that sense, then we suggest that the person can imagine being with parents, but not the parents that they grew up with or, or any caregivers that they've known, but they can imagine now being with a new and different set of parents, parents who are ideally suited to them and to their nature, to their needs, to their feelings. And then as a therapist, we co-create with the patient this imagery so that as a therapist, we set the frame saying, now notice the ways that these parents are being with you that help you feel so very secure, so very safe in your connection with them, for example. And so that's the frame. And we don't tell the patient, you know, what those qualities are. I mean, we can suggest those later. But initially, we, we ask the patient to just notice what he or she is noticing about his or her own imagined ideal parents that feels just right and that supports a sense of security. It's based on the principle that we, no matter what we've experienced, no matter how difficult, painful, traumatic our early experiences were, at some level, deep down, we know what we needed, and we know what would be right for our healing and for our best self. And this method helps access that in people. And it, it can be so powerful and so beautiful and so moving when we experience this and, and help people come into contact mm -hmm. with that. To answer your question specifically, often people will try to, you know, will start to imagine their actual parents, but maybe behaving differently. And we gently guide them away from that because even if they're imagining their actual parents who were problematic, behaving in not problematic ways, there's still a direct connection and association to whatever they experience with their actual parents, which can be problematic. So we mm -hmm. say, you know, we know your, your actual parents did the best they could, and, and uh, this is not about rejecting them in any way, but now you have the opportunity from what we're doing now to, to just imagine if you had entirely new and different parents who could really be with you right now in all the ways that you would most need. And then we encourage the imagination. The imagination gives infinite possibility for the ways that these parents can be in positive ways. And going back to a limitation of therapist as good attachment figure, you know, we as therapists, we don't have an infinite capacity to be exactly the way that you know, any particular patient needs. But the patient's imagination can create parent figures who can, who can be just right. That's why we call it ideal parent figure method. Right. I just was curious if you had a, because what, what I have found is if I can prompt them with some ideas, 
because at first they kind of flounder around, you know, like, what? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I can't mm-hmm. think. And then when I give them a couple of ideas, I just see it when they get it. And it's just delightful. Oh. And then it's just usually their tear, you know, like they, it's just, you can just see it click. Yeah. And, yeah. and then it's fun. <laughs> and it's like they can't wait to do it when it works. So I just was curious if you had found, like, I'm creating a list of things that have people have come up with. And um, yeah. that's why I was just curious if you... Yeah. Well, what have, what have you what have you suggested? You, you said that when you make suggestions well, when someone's well, having difficulties. Well, one I'll share. I, I, you know, because of these are active folks, I don't want to share yeah. one that people have actually said. But I'll tell you one yeah. that I use that will get because it's just one that I've generated, <laughs> and that it just it does typically help people uh, click. Which is when people are struggling, I'll say, well, you know, you can use anything. It can be a movie star or a you know, you know, whoever, and then I'll say, you know, you can just think of, until you can figure, think of someone. Think of the Obamas. <laughs> People just love it because they. I mean, not everyone. You know, you don't have to love the Obamas, but right. there's something about that couple figure that mm. is just I, people can at, at least temporarily park, and they can mm-hmm. imagine warmth and pleasure and delight mm-hmm. and safety mm-hmm. and comfort and mm-hmm. healthy ba- healthy boundaries if they've done something wrong. <laughs> they can mm-hmm. imagine being corrected and held and loved. And they, they might not stick there, but they get it. And it's also an up-down relationship, an authority relationship. Mm-hmm. So they can, mm-hmm. they can be little, and it often will kind of keep get it going. You know what I mean? And then, it, and then it launches into who they might end up landing on. But yeah. it's just, it, it typically will get a knowing smile, you know. <laughs> I was like, oh, I get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you, right, you've pointed them in the direction of what they're looking for, or what you're trying to help them find. So, so may, maybe them. I don't, maybe, you know, I've, I've, I've botched the whole thing. I don't have the right idea. <laughs> maybe no, I've gone no, not at all. Off. No. <laughs> maybe I've gone off in the wrong direction here. I don't know. <laughs> No, I don't think you have. I, I think that, as you said, not everybody will immediately come up with these ideal parent figures. If they could, you know, maybe they wouldn't need the treatment. <laughs> so, right, that's right. So uh, often there is difficulty at first in coming up with these figures. There's a whole section in, in the book, uh, in one of the chapters of difficulties that therapists can encounter with this approach, including the person having trouble coming up with parent figures. But one of the ways of responding to that is just as you said, making some suggestions, like starting generally, well, it could be someone from a movie or or a book or someone that you have experienced from the movie or book or perhaps someone you've known who who you've Mm -hmm. thought of as having qualities that you could imagine really loving in a, in a parent, if, if you could have that in a parent, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. Yeah, that's um, like religious figures or... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we give some examples in the book, and someone had come up with, speaking of movie stars, Whoopi Goldberg uh, oh. was, was, was one I- ideal mother. And just like the Obamas, Whoopi Goldberg probably wouldn't be ideal for everybody. But, <laughs> right, right. You know, what matters is each particular person's sense of ideal. Interestingly, one person used a family of skunks, that the parents really? were skunks. So sometimes people who have maybe some dismissing attachment or some difficulty with a sense of closeness, 
they might start with animals because that's a little bit safer. And as therapists, we just support that and support the, 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 the relational experience with the animals. Over time, we keep suggesting ideal parent figures and gradually prompt toward developing more of a sense of a human ideal parent figure. And ultimately, people are able to do that as well. So we, we set the frame and we attune to the patient and follow the patient's lead and co-create this imagery. It's a very dynamic process. Well, and what I love so much about it is that then it's just limited by one's imagination and it's free and people can do it all the time. And people yes. have taken off and used their creativity to really play with it. And yeah. that's where it's just really, really been. And also the way that I have talked about it is, you know, just like there's was so much neuro research on, you know, the use of imagery and, you know, like the piano player that you can give a piece to and they can study it and not practice it. And then the person that practices it and then that there's no difference just by using mm. imagery. And people are familiar mm. with that. And so mm. it's sort of like that this isn't for some people who think it's, touchy-feely or too sweet or, you know, like a little la-la or something. My delivery is tends to be more, you know, like this is very science-oriented. This isn't affirmations or super soft. This is actually hard science work. And yes. it's really something you can actually do to create a new neural network that physically works and, yes. you know, that will functionally help you gain all of those earned secure benefits. Well, well, in terms of the, you know, the, the science of it and the sort of the developmental considerations of this, the imagery process through the ideal parent figure work, we're helping the person create internal representations. Mental imagery is an internal representation and an internal working model is an internal representation. So we are actually engaging the psychological, neuropsychological process that's involved in the development of and maintenance of internal representations. That's very different than talking about attachment adult to adult, exploring behavior in one's current life with attachment patterns. That can be valuable, but as, as we said, it's just we don't think it's efficient, and this is a much more developmentally and, and we'd say scientifically consistent approach. Well, because you make the point in the book that it is preverbal, that mm -hmm. the, if it's actual if it's actual attachment, that the, that all occurred preverbal, so that insight yes. alone, insight alone actually can be hurtful. And some of the attachment interventions can be hurtful and shaming because yeah, we can point out oh that's dismissing, but. Mm that that can just lead to a feeling of shame. We can become aware that I'm being dismissing, but that doesn't, insight doesn't necessarily help us change it. It can just make us self-conscious. And so that's part of why we really like to talk about it as a state and it's changeable. And it's that, that's part of why I've been so crazy about the positive. And then I also like how you talk about these things being in the metacognition and also the collaboration. I love that too, because it's a really positive way to talk about resistance Mm -hmm. And it's very non-shaming and like talking to someone who might be in a dismissive state about their eye contact being down or their single word answers being a form of non-collaborative, you know, verbal and non-verbal behavior, mm -hmm. that it, mm -hmm. it's a way, it's motivating 
and it mm. gives them something to to do. Anyway, all yeah. of those things going together is part of what has been so inspiring and so exciting. Mm. As you referred to earlier, when we work with a patient and introduce this method to them, it's very helpful to encourage them to do it on their own as well, either making mm-hmm. a, an audio recording that they can follow or just a more spontaneously calling upon the ideal parent figure imagery. I have, I have patients come in and say, well, I was really kind of scared, you know, before I was about to do this, but then I just had my ideal parent figures come and they were very comforting and very soothing and I didn't feel so scared anymore. Yeah. You know? yeah. So that's an example of using it, you know, using it on ourselves. And Absolutely. I love that. I've even used it in my groups where that, you know, sometimes people give themselves a hard time. You know, I shouldn't have said that. And, you know, that sort of thing, which is all that's the old working model. And so it's like, why not, again, use this on yourself in a sense of like yeah. the, the group can be the ideal. And I, I mean, I know this is a riff of mm. what you're recommending, but I'm just sharing a riff of it which is that if you're going to make something up, which that is a made-up experience that everyone's thinking these bad things about you, and this could be a party, it doesn't have to be group, right? But then make mm-hmm. up the perfect response and mm-hmm. make up the ideal response of what you actually need. And then the following week we can go, we can come in. So at least you're being held between times in the way that you need. And so that's been really interesting and just as a, another way of working. And so, yeah, it's been very productive and generative. So. Wonderful. I'm, yeah. I'm wondering if it might be helpful for your listeners, because I know there's a, a range. Some are, some are therapists, some are not therapists. For me to go through one piece that's in the book, which is the five primary conditions that promote secure attachment. These are way back when, when Mary Ainsworth, as a close colleague of John Bowlby, started talking about and writing about maternal responsiveness, basically qualities of the mother, we would say now the caregiver, mother and or father, qualities that tended to support the child developing secure attachment. And over the years, many people have talked about, you know, qualities that would be part of this category. But through all of our explorations and our work, we've come up with a list that we we feel captures the the essence of all that's been out there and and really highlights the principles that parents can aspire to as they're raising their children and that we as therapists can aspire to as we're working with our patients. So we talk about the five primary conditions that promote secure attachment. And the conditions involve, because attachment is a relational phenomenon, It involves both the experience of the child or the person doing the ideal parent figure imagery or the person in relationship, and also the parent or the caregiver or the therapist or the relationship partner. So there's, let's say, infant experience and then parental behavior that's designed to promote and support that infant experience. So the first thing that's really fundamental to attachment security is a felt sense of safety. So we want the child to feel safe in relationship, to feel safe in his or her own experience. And the parental behavior that ideally supports that, of course, is being consistently protective. The second is that ideally the the infant and the child will feel seen and known, will have a sense that his or her caregiver will be really attuned to his or her experience. 
So the parental behavior is, is attunement. The parent strives to be attuned to whatever the child is experiencing, to recognize when there's a change in facial expression and to know that that means that there's been a change in the internal state and to be curious and interested and to notice that state, to let the child know that he or she has been seen in, in that experience. The third is that, that ideally the child will consistently feel comfortable, of course, not 100% of the time, but, but that with the parent or the caregiver, more often than not, they'll be provided a sense of comfort. And the parental behavior that can support this is consistent soothing and reassurance. The fourth condition is the child feels valued, feels that he or she, as he or she is, not just by what he or she does, but his or her very being is valued. And that comes ideally from the parent or caregiver who consistently expresses delight, is delighted by all aspects of the child. Again, not 100% of the time, but maybe as, a, as I heard in one of your earlier podcasts, maybe 70% of the time. You know, that more often than not, the parent is, is really delighted by who the child is. And then the last condition is the child feels supported for exploration, for, di for discovering who he or she is at, at his or her best. And the parent supports that by encouraging inner and outer exploration, by showing interest in the child's inner experience, by allowing and reinforcing the child as he or she starts to explore around, explore through play, through moving away from the parent and finding something that uh, is new and getting interested in that. So those are the, the five conditions that I think are relevant for parents who want to raise children in the, you know, to, to be as secure as possible. For therapists who, in the context of the imagery work and the three pillars work, want to be the best possible therapeutic caregivers. And even in relationships, these are relevant too. We see that relationships benefit from each partner being aware of the value of each of these conditions to, to support a, a strong and, and close relationship. Can you share, um, if listeners would like to reach out to you directly, how best might they do that? Probably the best way would be through my website, which is www.davidelliotphd.com. That's D-A-V-I-D-E-L-L-I-O-T-T. PhD.com. So two L's and two T's in my name, David Elliott, PhD.com. Well, you've been so generous with your time, and I uh, really appreciate all the inspiration clinically. And for all of our listeners, thank you so much for sticking with us. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcast player and sign up for our email list so that you don't do not miss a thing. Uh, we always send out, actually, we don't email very often because we don't like to spam people or send unnecessary email. But when we do, we typically will pack it full of good, interesting, usable materials for you. Sue, let me say, too, I just want to thank you so much for, you know, having me on and giving me the opportunity to talk about all this. And, and I, you know, thank you and for the podcast, the Therapist Uncensored podcast, which I think is just tremendous. And it's a real service to individuals and, and the world. Fantastic. I really appreciate what you're all doing. Oh, that is awesome. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's been a labor, labor of love for sure. 
we, we've gotten some really sweet feedback from listeners. It's it's kind of weird sometimes to think they're actually somebody out there and we're not just <laughs> doing a pretend hobby as 12-year-old kids, you know. But sometimes that's how we kind of actually are able to do it. But it seems like it's actually really making a difference for some people. So uh, we yeah, really... Sure. Yeah, it's really fun. But thank you. Okay. Really appreciate you saying that. All right. Thanks so much for listening today. If you find our show meaningful to you, which we hope we do, please take the time, if you could, to show some support. Even if you just rate and review us, pass it on to others. And for those of you that can, if you could join us as a Patreon member at patreon.com backslash Therapist Uncensored, we could really use some support in bringing you our upcoming season. And if you can't afford it, we understand that too. This is for everyone out there and we're wanting to get this great material to people, you know, continue our mission of building security across the world, one episode at a time. So thank you for listening and we'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 